0: So, King Jesus, here we stand in the darkness, the darkness of a world that's groaning, the darkness of a world that's fallen, the darkness of a world that's not as it should be. But we do not stand as men and women who have no hope, because you're the light of the world. And before you, the darkness trembles. Light has come and is spreading. And we're here to engage with that. We don't just stand in the midst of a worship service. Whether here in this auditorium or online, we're, we're, we're in the midst of, of our journeys. And some of us are in a pretty dark place. But I thank you that the gospel is good news. The gospel is for our darkness. That Christmas is for the winter of our souls, our circumstances. So would you speak light and hope and care and guidance and understanding into whatever we're grappling with, whatever maybe a friend's grappling with? We submit before you right now and thank you that you've spoken into the darkness and we're listening and we pray this in the name of the one before whom the darkness trembles. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. We could go home right now, couldn't we? But, but we're not going to, um, or at least I'm not. It is so good to have you here, and uh, this whole notion of looking at light that has a name, this notion of name, our names are important. I, I, I don't know if you're aware or not, my name is Matt Hurd, and it's an incomplete sentence. <laughs> I get that from people all the time. They're thinking they're the, first ones, they're the first ones ever thought of it. They'll say, hey, did you know your name's an incomplete sentence? And then they just start laughing, and I say, yeah, whatever. Uh, then other people say, well, how appropriate that you're a, a pastor, because my middle initial is B, so Matthew B. Heard. Ha, <laughs> ha, isn't that inappropriate? Um, <laughs> our names We know our names well. We want others to know our names well. We want others to interact with our names. How many of you have just two names on your birth certificate? Just two. I mean, it's pretty special. It's the way people used to do it. Now we started adding. Most of us have three names. Who has four names on their birth certificate? Oh, there we go. Anybody have five names on their birth certificate? We've got a a door prize out out back (laughs) if you do. Anybody have 29 names?" <laughs> you said nobody has 29 names. Ah, there's a guy in Edinburgh, Scotland. His name was Nicholas Usansky. He didn't like his name, Nicholas, so he wanted his name to be changed. He had always wanted the name Barnaby and, and Marmaduke. And he started thinking through it, and he went through the process of legally changing his name. And there are 29 names. So I guess that would be, he's got a first and last name and then 27 middle names. Are you curious what they are? Here we go. Let's see if I can say it, say his name in one breath. Barnaby Marmaduke, Heloiseus, Benji Cobweb, D'Artagnan, Egbert, Felix, Gaspar, Humbard, Ignatius, Jaden, Casper, Leroy, Maximilian, Nettie, Obajalu, Pepin, Quillian, Rosencrantz, Sexton, Teddy, Upwood, Viva Tama, Wayland, Zyland, Yardley, Zachary, Usansky. There you go. You talk about a name tag, or a dr- driver's license probably has an extension to it. And here's what he said in an interview, he's now in the Guinness Book of World Records for the length of his name. He said in an interview, everybody ignores my new name. They insist on calling me Nick, which isn't one of my names anymore. I've even had people telling me, I'm not calling you Barnaby. Oh, they don't ask me what I want to be called, and you have to call somebody by what they wish to be called. Get that. We all would agree with that. We have a name by which we wish to be called. And for us to have, the same is true of, 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 of God. But for you and me, if, if we're going to have any depth of relationship, we need to know one another's names, for starters back when I was a freshman in college, I went to Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama for two years, then studied over in Europe for a couple of years, and then was up at Wheaton College in Chicago after that. But my freshman year at Samford, it's a beautiful campus in Birmingham, Alabama, and all these sidewalks on the quad and around campus. And you're seeing people all the time between classes. And uh, I bet September, the first month during school, I was walking with somebody, and this girl came towards us on the sidewalk and she said, she, I, I thought she was looking at me, and she said, hey, Bill, uh, and, and waved and smiled and, and moved on. I'm thinking, well, maybe she wasn't looking at me. Um, but none of my buddies' names were Bill either. So a couple of days later, saw her at a different part of campus. And it was just me and another guy walking along. And this girl comes by and says, hey, Bill. And I was in the middle of a sentence, and I know that time she was talking to me, but I couldn't say anything, and I just kind of nodded. The next time I saw her, about a week later, she said, hello, Bill. I was too embarrassed to correct her. You know, after, she's, she's thinking my name's Bill. And I, I uh, so for two years, every time that girl said, hello, Bill, with, and sometimes she would call across the quad or whatever, hey, Bill, and I'd be talking with somebody and I'd turn and I'd wave at them and they would look at me. It's a long story. Uh, But can you imagine us having any depth of a relationship? No. Why? Because she didn't know my name. There was just something superficial about it. Now our names are a form of identification, typically. But scripturally, biblically speaking, a person's name goes deeper than just identification on a driver's license or a credit card. name is a form of identity. Uh, Biblical names convey who a person is, conveys their essence, their characteristics, their qualities, their strengths, their competencies. And that is immensely true when it comes to the names of God, the names of Jesus. It's not just saying the name, it's understanding the fullness of the name. A person's name is who they are and what they do. And so when you refer to the name of Jesus, you're not just talking about the name J-E-S-U-S. You're talking about who He is, what He does. It's... it's why we worship him every week. But many of us know, okay, praying in Jesus' name, thinking, well, if you don't pray in Jesus' name, it's, it's not going to work. It's, and some people, I, I think, treat it almost like a rabbit's foot. We've got to say that name of Jesus. That's not what, what's being referred to there. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray cognizant, aware, submissive to the reality of who he is and what he does and is capable of doing. It's embracing his character. Psalm 8 talks about... O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's not just referring to Yahweh as being a beautiful name. How majestic is your character, your competence. How majestic is who you are and what you do in authoring and sustaining and strengthening all the earth. So it's under the umbrella of understanding the power of the name of Jesus that we're embarking on this series that we're calling Light Has a Name during Advent. And to guide us, we're going to an Old Testament prophecy. If you've got your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. It's right in the middle of your Bible, one of the major prophets. And you go through Scripture, and... The veracity, the validity, maybe some of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, you're investigating perhaps Christianity, or somebody's invited you during Advent, and you're saying uh, okay. You look at Scripture, and many have said what's, what undergirds the veracity, the validity of who Jesus is, is not just that the Bible said he did what he did, but that the Bible said he would do what he did, meaning it's the prophecies. Those It's not just the historical account that's valid, but it's the prophecies that were written hundreds of years before Christ came. Uh, Advent means coming. There's Christ's first advent and his second advent. We're waiting on his second advent. We've experienced his first coming, his first advent. We're in the in-between time. In that first advent, there were th- about 300 prophecies, all written, recorded, hundreds of years before Christ came, the last of which was at least 400 years before he came. The prophet Isaiah is written about 600 years uh, before Christ came. 300 prophecies. A lot of people say that's what's worth paying attention to. In fact, one mathematician started researching it and, and, and came up with the top 48 prophecies and began to calculate what are the odds of those 48 prophecies, you know, where he was born, being born of a virgin, so forth, all of these different things that he would do. What, what are the odds of those 48 prophecies being fulfilled in one man, and the mathematician came up with the odds are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. 1 in 10 put 157 zeros after it. That, that's the odds. The, a better reason to believe or just as valid of a reason to believe in, in Jesus is not just the Bible said he did what he did, but the Bible said he would do what he did. And this, this prophecy from Isaiah is in that category. Hear what the prophet says at the end of chapter 8. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. I'm going to read it again. I love the honesty of Scripture. And they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is referring to the darkness of a fallen world. Robert Frost in one of his poems wrote, I have been one acquainted with the night. How about you? If you've been walking around on this planet for any length of time, you've also been one acquainted with the night. I don't know what the night looks like in your life right now. It could be that you're in a season of relative okayness, but you know well more darkness is coming saying, how depressing. It's realistic. The scriptures never back away from being realistic and honest. We are men and women acquainted with the night. And that came through to me this week as I'm preparing for this. In a wave of deep pain, of darkness. I was in the midst. I had just finished several meetings on Friday afternoon and was diving back in to to more prep for today, and got the phone call. I'll give you a little background. Some of you have read my book, uh, Life with a Capital L, in it there's a chapter on freedom. At the beginning of that chapter, I talk about three friends of mine, Carlito, Howie and Chuck. Got to know them in prison, and they gave me a lot of tutelage about what it looks like to leave prison. And Chuck, the one on the right there, made the quote. It was, it's so, He says, it's disturbing to me to, to see so many people who are in church and in prison at the same time. Not a literal prison, but the prison of their hearts. Not really unpacking the gospel. These three guys got to know because we had a chaplain who was very involved at territorial prison in Colorado. And all three of them ended up getting out. We were instrumental in petitioning the governor, especially with Chuck on the far right, asking him for clemency. These guys had all committed very serious crimes, but had come to Christ in prison. And how he was teaching. When I met him, he was teaching seminary classes, two other inmates in prison, prison, teaching systematic theology in Hebrew and Greek. Chuck was a genius musician in prison, leading worship. So we agreed to give all of them jobs at, on our church staff. Uh, Carlita was in our facilities department. Howie was in our men's discipleship ministry. And Chuck joined our worship team, a phenomenal worship leader. Chuck ended up marrying Cindy, a dear friend of mine who was our creative arts director. Chuck had been in prison 23 years. He had gone in when he was 15 years old. And he was released in July of 2011. And we had, the church already knew about him because he had done some videos for us and we welcomed him and Howie and it was this amazing celebration as a church, as announcing he was going to be on our staff and it was just powerful. Friday afternoon while I'm in the midst of reading A verse, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. I got the news that Chuck had been in a single car automobile accident, had been thrown from the car and was killed, 44 years old. So I was on the phone with Cindy and Howie and Carlito and Dan. the chaplain, and and several other friends who were involved in their lives. You know what darkness is like. It's one of those things where you say, God, are you kidding me? Really? After all of this story of redemption, this utter darkness, does the gospel have anything to say to moments like that? And the reason I'm standing up here is that I believe at the core of my being, it does. But every time a phone call like that happens, I have to review. I mentioned a moment ago, some of you might not be followers of Jesus, you're investigating. Becky Pippert a number of years ago said the reason that a lot of people who are not followers of Christ don't come to Christ is not because of their skepticism, it's because of the superficial sentimentality of church people that they see, who throw out $5 answers to million-dollar questions. Christmas is a time that will expose sentimentality like no other season of the year, which is also why it's one of the most painful seasons of the year, and it is the time when there are the most suicides, because people, uh, they, they see the sentimentality and it makes them feel like I'm missing out on it, but people that are thoughtful looking through that say, you know what, I don't know that that Christianity, I, I'm, I'm not really interested in having a warm fuzzy about a baby in a manger. I've got some darkness I'm grappling with. Does the gospel address that? And I love the honesty and the power and the veracity of the word of God that invades phone calls like that. When I'm on the phone talking with Cindy saying, Matt, he's gone, and I'm staring at my computer screen with this passage, I'm gonna keep reading it. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Then here we go. Nevertheless. Because of the gospel, whatever darkness you're dealing with, maybe it's financial, maybe it's medical uh, news, maybe it's something at work, maybe it's relational, maybe nobody else knows about it, maybe tons of people know about it. I've got a word from the Word of God for you, for your darkness, nevertheless. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And the people, do in their lives, walking in darkness, have seen a great light and on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned. That light has a name. That name is Jesus. His advent is what we celebrate. It's not a sentimental holiday. It's a substantive engagement with how history has been redeemed and reclaimed by its creator. The promise that God made in the garden that I Will not destroy what I've made, I will instead in redeem this rebellion. And I'm going to bring light once again to the darkness. That light has a name. You go to verse 6 of Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Light has a name. His name's Jesus. And it's not just a label. It's His character, it's His competency, it's who He is, it's what He does. So go back to the text. We're gonna chew on this. And for some of you, you know you're in the midst of some deep darkness. And I come to you right now in the name of the light, not with some bromide or cliche But with a gospel that engages the darkness, that doesn't circumvent, bypass, or deny that things are difficult in this broken world. But in the midst of it, light comes. We're in this in-between time between the first advent and the second advent. Victory has been assured because of the first advent, but fighting continues. There's a mysterious plan that God has. We don't know the issue of timing, but we do know the issue of hope, has come, the reality of hope has come. Go back to the text, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Powerful statement. In fact, in this statement is the centerpiece, at the, it's at the epicenter of our faith described Look at it again. Think through it. For to us, a child is born. The Hebrew word for child there is male child, yaled. So he says, to us, a male child is born. Well, then, of course, that's a son. So why is the second statement given, and to us, a son is given? Is it to announce that he can be a descendant of David as a male? Well, that's already implied. It's, It's redundant. Do you know the reason for those two phrases put side by side, it's at the core of who Jesus is, fully human, fully God. To us, a child is born, he took on our humanity, but a son has been given. Son, well it's a male child, yes, yes, male child, human. This is more than just a male child. A son has been given. John three sixteen. I think you might have heard that verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only, what, Son. So there's Christ subjecting Himself to being born as an infant, but He is the Son who has been given preexistent to His birth. Hebrews chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His, what? Son. Whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. For Isaiah 9, 6 again, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given. This child was fully human, but as Son of God, He was fully God. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Philippians chapter 2, and that kenosis hymn, one of the, the earliest hymns of the ancient church, kenosis meaning emptying. How does it describe Jesus? You talk about directly related to Isaiah 9, 6. Here's Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Who being in very nature God, this is referring, describing Jesus, the one that you and I need to learn to relate with in the midst of our darkness. Got to get his character, got to get who he is. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, meaning clutched, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, kenosis is the word there. doesn't mean he emptied himself of his deity, but he emptied himself of the independent... Uh, uh, exercise of his divine attribute, so to speak, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Into the midst of your darkness, Jesus comes, fully human, coming alongside, fully God, leading us, being enough for us. There's eminence, there's transcendence, it's the beauty of this prophecy. And so we're going to spend a few moments meditating on this verse, on this truth. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know if you've done much meditating. I go through seasons, I need to meditate more. To meditate is to chew, to ponder, to reflect, to not rush, to take your time. When you meditate on a passage of scripture, it's good to just read it over and over. Some of you know the ancient practice of Lectio Divina, sacred reading. It's where you just, you don't rush through it and say, oh, okay, I've read that verse before, what's next? No, you spend time and let, emphasize a word. Maybe in this one it's government. Government meaning his ability to rule, his ability to rule you in the midst of whatever you might be dealing with. His ability to rule us as a church and what we're dealing with. Or maybe in the, your darkness, is the, the wonderful counselor pops out. Or mighty God pops out. I'm not sure what. But to enable you, I'm going to encourage you and uh, give you an opportunity to take two minutes and engage with this text. To engage with it from within your darkness. Or maybe you're, you're with somebody and they're going through an awful time. Maybe they got a phone call like I got this week. Stand with them and savor the Word of God, savor the gospel. To help us do this, we're going to benefit from a fellow Christ follower from a few centuries ago in the summer of 1741, a German organist and composer named George Frederick Handel wrote what we now know as the Messiah. Messiah is sung at Christmas every year and thousands of times around the world. It was first performed in April of 1742 in Dublin, Ireland. And it's scripture, scripture, scripture. Probably the, the climactic moment of Messiah, as you all know, is the Hallelujah Chorus. But there are a number of other powerful points. One of them is in part two, this verse, Isaiah 9:6. 6. So we're going to take a two-minute clip of that And I want you to let that music enable you to focus on each word and then come back to that phrase and move on and then come back. You can daydream. You can waste the time. Or it can be two of the most significant times, two of the most significant moments of your entire Advent season. I'm going to ask you to stand right now. That takes us out of the passivity thing. We're standing in the presence of the Word of God, but we're not just standing in the presence of God's Word and in the presence of the Gospel. We're standing in the midst of whatever darkness we're dealing with. So grapple both with your darkness and also the Gospel. Word of God, speak. Grateful we can be for God's gracious, sovereign choice to speak into our darkness, His name. To speak into your darkness, His name. You can have a seat. So it's this name that we're going to spend time on during this month. One each time, more or less, and today it's Wonderful Counselor. And I just want to bring out a couple of things about that, because that could be, as you were meditating, saying, that's the name I need right now in my darkness. I need some counsel. But, but that phrase is powerful. The word wonderful, that's how we have it, but literally, it's, it's actually not a, a, an adjective. It's, it's a noun. Probably the best translation would be wonder of a counselor. It's referring to something uh, transcendent, something supernatural, something powerful. Not just, oh, that's neat counsel. This is wondrous counsel. Wonder filled, yes, but wonder in and of itself. It's something that brings amazement. Man, how appropriate is that? During Christmas, not only is sentimentality often rise, and again, I'm not bashing, being sentimental. That's good to have. It's just make sure that's not all we've got during Christmas. Another is amusement. A lot of times amusement really uh, rises to the forefront during Christmas, and the reason is we're a culture that's addicted to amusement. And so every excuse we get, that's great. You've heard me say it before probably, but amuse, you break it down, muse means think. A ah is a negation, so amuse ah means to not think. Is that okay? Well, sure, it's okay. Every now and then we need to take a, take a break from thinking until that becomes all we want to do is not think, not think, not think, and just go through and, and begin to do what uh, uh, Soren Kierkegaard refers to as tranquilizing ourselves with the trivial. And sometimes we do that to medicate ourselves in the midst of the darkness because we have no hope. We have no wondrous counselor who amazes us, who fills us with awe, and that takes some time to do just what you and I did. Let the Word of God speak. Speak into the darkness. The Word of God does not say deny the darkness. The Word of God says the darkness is not the ultimate victor. Christos victor. Christ is the victor. That whole notion of him being wonderful. Psalm 65 verse 8, the whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders where morning dawns, where evening fades. You call forth songs of joy. Now this notion of him being your counselor, my counselor. Many of us have have friends who are counselors have gone to see counselors and the benefit of that is powerful. But here Isaiah is saying, The wonder of a counselor is the one who has received no counsel, and we have direct access to him. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 13, you got something, a dilemma right now you're dealing with? Here you go. Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? In other words, nobody. He is the author of all wisdom. He is the one who comes to us in the darkness with supernatural counsel, supernatural wisdom. His Word, His Spirit, His Son. So what will it look like? Well, if you go to a great counselor, you're going to experience a number of things, and there are four things that I I would highlight that come to the forefront in this whole notion of engaging with Jesus as my wonderful counselor. First, and and this does not come out of some theological ivory tower pastor study vacuum where I'm denying reality. This came and comes in the midst of a phone call that shattered my heart. I'm staring at my computer screen, wonderful counselor, I need your counsel. What does that look like? It's what we get from other human counselors, but this is wondrous. Care is the first result of him being, he cares. You got something, darkness you're grappling with, he cares. Isaiah 53 verse four. Later in the, the prophecy, he says, surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering. Which is why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. He really does. He cares. I immediately go to Jesus at Lazarus's tomb, his good friend who died. Jesus knew he was sick unto death. and. He died. Jesus didn't hurry there. And we're told that he wept outside of Lazarus' tomb. Here he's about to raise him from the dead, but he still wept, he still cared. The people watching said, see how he loved him. I think that was on Peter's mind when he said, cast your all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He does care. But Peter is saying, I've seen it with my own eyes even though he knew that he was going to renew all things and even resurrect Lazarus, he still wept and cared over the shrapnel of a fallen world that was embedded in this community that was grieving over Lazarus' death. I could be assured on Friday afternoon that Jesus cares for Cindy, for this whole community. But his wondrous counsel doesn't just, his wonder of a counsel does not just include his care, it includes his understanding. He understands. His infinite wisdom, but he's also walked this path. You go back to the prophet in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering. And I want you to hear this. Some of you are in immense pain right now. Nobody knows. This light that has a name whose name is wonder of a counselor, he's familiar with pain. He's familiar with it. A child is born. He took on our humanity. But There's a third blessing that comes from his counsel. It's not just his care and his understanding, but it's his guidance. His guidance. He says, let me lead you out of this. Let me lead you through this. He doesn't exempt us from going through the darkness, but he leads us in the darkness. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says this, chapter 30, verse 21, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. He says, let me guide you through this. You know how he guides us? One step at a time. I would prefer him to be a, guide me a mile out. He says, no, I'm gonna guide you one step out. But what about one step? Take that step and trust me. And some of you right now, that's all you can do. And you know what? That's all you need to do. One step. This light who has a name, cares. He understands. He guides. But you know, the fourth blessing, the reality of this wonder of a council is that he brings hope. He brings hope. Peter 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in His great mercy He has given us new birth into, I love this, a living hope. Where does that living hope come from? Does it come from a Jedi mind trick? Does it come from a little positive men- mental attitude thing? No. Where does it come from? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Every day I have to grapple with the resurrection. And the afternoons like Friday afternoon, that's where I went. Jesus, is Jesus risen from the dead or not? If he's not risen from the dead, we're wasting our time. But if he is, we can be assured that light has a name and that name is Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and not someone who exempts us from the darkness, but someone who comes into the darkness of the fallen world and makes it tremble. And says, I will give you care and understanding and guidance and hope. Between services, I read a post of Cindy's, Chuck's wife. There are moments of tears, she just wrote this this morning, there are moments of tears and pain where I feel as though I'm drowning. And moments of soft smiles when I remember the laughs and the silliness of each day we lived. We believe God authored our story from chapter one to the present, I now find myself in. Those chapters are filled line by line with moments of love, messiness, laughter, and grace. We are two imperfect people who found themselves in the perfect story of God, and it is not over. How is she able to write that? I know Cindy very well. She's able to write that because of the wonder of a counselor that's with her in the darkness. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's creation, the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, what's the phrase that they use? Because of the white witch's curse, this is a place where it's always winter and never Christmas. That's what this would be. This world would be if it weren't for the gospel. It's winter, but Christmas has come. It's dark, but light has come, leading us one step of the t- at a time until there will be no more darkness. But until that day, we have the name that is above every name. It's not just a label, but it's the essence of who He is. Let's stand together and pray. I'm going to pray over you, and then before we go into our darkness, We're going to proclaim that his name is beautiful. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the reality of the incarnation. There are a lot of people that would say, what a terrible time for something like this to happen to Chuck at Christmas time, which is true. But it would be a terrible thing to happen at any time. But when these things happen in proximity to Christmas, if it's just sentimentality that Christmas is about for us, it shatters it. But if it's the substance of the incarnation, we cling to the reality that light has a name. So enable us right now in whatever darkness we or somebody we love is grappling with, enable us to proclaim not from the top of our throats but from the bottom of our hearts and the core of our journey that your name is enough and it's beautiful. Hear us as we worship you for who you are and what you do.